Dotnet Rocks episode 914 with guest Troy Hunt. Recorded live Friday, September 20th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, again. We just keep on doing this. Yeah, we just keep doing it. Hundreds of times. What's up with you, man? Up with me? Well, um, geez. Uh, uh, just a nice day out, and I'm in the studio recording with you. That's always a good thing. But I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining, because most of my time is spent doing things I love to do. I love this job. Yeah, and if I don't miss our guests, the day this show publishes, we've just finished our Ireland tour, and uh, we're probably drinking in a pub in Dublin right now. And I had a cracking good time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are worse problems in this world, that's for sure. Yep, absolutely. All right, enough chit-chat. Let's get on with it. Better know framework. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Well, in honor of uh, the topic today, I thought I, and I hope I'm not stepping on Troy here too much, but in uh, um, ASP.NET Web Projects in Visual Studio 2013, we have some new stuff, oh. right? some new ASP.NET stuff. ASP.NET Identity is a new membership system for ASP.NET apps, and it's kind of like the old stuff, but it right out of the documentations, it makes it easy to integrate user-specific profile data with application data. Nice. And it also allows you to choose the persistence model for user profiles in your application SQL Server database or another data store, including NoSQL data stores, uh, even Windows Azure storage tables. So also claims-based authentication is supported now. So the user's identity is represented as a set of claims from a trusted issuer. Cool. And users can be authenticated using a username and password maintained in an application database we're using social identity providers like, uh, you know, for OAuth, Microsoft accounts, Facebook, Google, Twitter, or using organizational accounts through Windows Azure Active Directory or Active Directory Federation services and uh, all sorts of integration there. And also integration with OWIN, which is uh, um, uh, OWIN middleware, O-W-I-N. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't even know what that – open web interface for .NET, but that's out of my league. I'm just I'm just the bringer of information there. Got a link? Yes, tinyurl.com slash ASPNet Identity. No dots, just ASPNET Identity. Awesome. There you go. No, it's cool. Nice it. find. Yeah. Talk about the new stuff. Richard, who's talking to us? Again, in honor of our guest, I went back to his last show, which was show number 735. We talked about securing ASP.NET, and this comment comes from Zeph, who says, I really like this show. However, I disagree with some of the principles on passwords. For sites which you want to register for, simply so they can track your activity and ensure they can identify you through their whole site, like this one, and he's talking about .NET rocks and the the whole uh, discuss registration so mm -hmm. that we can you know send mugs and things, there should be an absolute minimum password requirement. Yeah. I want to be able to use a simple, easy to remember password across all types of these sites and not be forced to come up with something more complex, which has a higher rate of reuse across sites, which might have more sensitive data about me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the strength of a password should be proportional to the sensitivity of the information behind the password. Mm. Plus, the downside of having my .NET Rocks account hacked is someone can log in and exactly what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can leave a bad message, which won't make it to the site anyway. Yeah. Uh, great show as always. Zeph, I'm totally, uh, by the way, what makes this even funnier is there's a reply to Zeph's message from someone called Zeph, who says, as a hacker impersonating Zeph, I also disagree with anything that interferes with Zeph using the same simple password everywhere. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Zeph. <laughs> 
but I do agree that a I think a lot of the pat we'll talk about this with Troy for sure that a lot of the password rules are dumb because they don't actually make passwords more secure, just harder to remember. And that, uh, yeah, you've got to don't have too big opinion of yourself in terms of how important the data is that you're collecting here and who wants to have what kind of passwords they want to have. I mean, that being said, shouldn't you have a password management system really, Zeph? Come on, you slacker. <laughs> Regardless, a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our fine mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are made by Diatom Enterprises. If you'd like to make you an app, you can find them at diatomenterprises.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They're releasing over 40 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight overs tons of courses on ASP.NET development, and they have several courses dedicated to understanding security, including one by our guest, Troy Hunt. Hack Yourself First, How to Go on the Cyber Offense, which I'm sure he'll talk about. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce Troy. Troy Hunt is an Aussie developer security MVP, specializing in web security and working to help developers learn their XSS from their CSRF from their XFO. He's a frequent blogger at TroyHunt.com, the author of the free ebook. OWASP Top 20 for .NET Developers and Regular Conference Speaker. Most recently, he's completed his second Pluralsight course, Hack Yourself First, How to Go on the Cyber Offense, where Troy intends to turn web developers of all kinds into self-hacking machines. Welcome, Troy. G'day, guys. How are you going? G'day, may I say. <laughs> well done. Very well done. Yeah, okay. So, Hack Yourself. Go hack yourself. That's a good. That's good advice, actually. Hey, you know, first of all, I love that comment from Zef. If we're not complaining about maximum password limits, we're complaining about minimum password limits. Right, <laughs> right. It says we always want something to complain about. That's right. Yeah, I'm, and I'm of the opinion if you haven't got anybody complaining, nobody's paying attention. Yeah, good. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah, so hack yourself first. How to go on the cyber offensive? So uh, the the whole idea is, I would like to try and help. Developers uh, learn how to break their own things first before someone else comes along and breaks it for them. Yeah, good. So, um, for I guess so, it starts with preventing the kinds of breaking in the first place. But do you actually start with, okay, take something that you think is, you know, completely done, and we'll start there. Like, do you start with preventative measures, or do you start with just let's take something you've done and we'll start picking it apart? Yes. <laughs> so, yes, so both. both. Yes. Um, so, you know, last time we spoke, we, we spoke at the start of 2012, and I was talking a lot about uh, OWASP Top 10 and, and .NET developers, and that did actually turn into a course after that for Pluralsight as well. And going through the process of sort of looking closely at that OWASP Top 10 and looking closely at .NET is the sort of preventative approach. It's, hey, I'm going to write code, or I'm in the middle of writing code. These are the mitigations that I need to put in at the C-sharp level, at the config level, uh, in order to, to keep the baddies out of my website. Mm. So that's a very sort of preventative, proactive, uh, early in the development cycle activity. The, the idea of hack yourself first and what I'm trying to focus on in this course is what happens when you're on the other end of that cycle. Right. So you've got a website out there. It's running. It's live. How can we start to identify insecure patterns? And a lot of this came about because I write a lot about websites that have done some, uh, let, let's say, unsavory security things. Mm. And the reality of it is it's very, very easy to pick these up in the browser. So I'd be picking stuff up and writing about it, and people would go, really? You know, I didn't know that was a problem. So I thought that actually made a pretty good course. So walk us through some of the, uh, the things that you, can, that you talk about in your course. Yeah, look, I mean, let's start at something like transport layer security, which which is always a, a good one. So, you know, are we making appropriate use of HTTPS? And a real good example here is is people will say, uh, look, I went and logged into a website and I saw HTTP in the address bar. And the developer or the organization will come back and say, oh, yeah, but it's okay because what it does is it posts to HTTPS. 
So in that post, your credentials are secure because after all, we're just trying to protect the credentials, right? Now, a really good example of where that goes wrong is that if you're protecting data in transit using SSL, then really you're sort of acknowledging the risk of a man in the middle attack. So you're saying somebody could actually get into my communication and gain access to data. But the thing is, it's not just about confidentiality, so keeping people or rather keeping data away from prying eyes. It's also about integrity. So what if that man in the middle could actually manipulate the login form? So what if they could change the path that it posts to? Or what if they could be a, a little more, uh, a little sneakier and say, whack in a bit of JavaScript and on change on the password field, send that off async to a service somewhere. So even though your credentials get posted to the legitimate site securely, they could have been siphoned off the site as well. So that's a really good example. That's called cross-site scripting, isn't it? Well, that wouldn't be cross-site scripting. I mean, cross-site scripting is when we would actually, uh, something like, say, reflected cross-site scripting is when we might load up a URL that reflected part of the query string into the page and manipulated the behavior of the page. So that's a little bit more of an in-browser sort of attack. Okay. Something like what I just described with uh, changing data on the page in transit is when we're saying, look, what if, what if my ISP was doing it? And there are examples of this. This happened in Tunisia a few years ago. The ISP was actually injecting a JavaScript keylogger into Facebook's login page oh, uh, when their citizens loaded up. And that's why Facebook uh, now has HTTPS everywhere. Wow. I mean, is that the basic statement these days that just you should be running SSL all the time? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. That gets us straight to the, straight to the pointy end. I think that's where we're getting to. I, I think that that's what we're ultimately going to have. And part of the reason I think that is that it's just getting too hard to try and apply HTTPS in a piecemeal sort of fashion. So the example I just gave you is is one case. You also see situations where someone will say, look, um, we want to have a login form on every page, but we want to be able to load the page over HTTP. So what we'll do is we'll whack an iframe in here and then we'll load the login form over HTTPS. But that means that the parent page, which has the iframe, isn't secure and could be compromised and load something else. And you just sort of get into this slippery slope of saying, well, to to try and make HTTP and HTTPS cohabit is getting harder and harder. But then you've also got problems where things like AdSense don't support HTTPS yet. So Hmm. you can't sort of say, look, I'm going to cut off my revenue stream just so my login's secure. You know, you've got to be financially viable, right? Sure. And it's interesting that they don't support it. I I would think they would. It's not that my thought here is like SSL is just not that big a deal. The certs aren't that expensive. It's not that hard to configure. Right. Just run it all the time. And we've got the CPU cycles. Like for the most part, near as I can tell on most of the web servers I'm running these days, all those CPUs are doing is smoking cigarettes and playing poker. Like they're bored. <laughs> Give them something to do. Is that, has that been the bottleneck though? The CPU? Cause I remember in the days of uh, XML web services and that came out, you know, one of the, one of the arguments for doing security in WS star was that the alternative was just use SSL, HTTPS, and that's too slow. You know, that was one of the arguments. Yeah. And and what's slow about it? Is it the CPU or is it just too much data, too much overhead? Because, I listen, I use Gmail all the time, and that's all HTTPS, and I don't worry about that at all. I don't consider it yeah, slow. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think we're sort of starting to get past the the time where there were legitimate excuses other than the fact that it's not supported by some third parties. Uh, we're starting to sort of get past that. So Gmail is a good example, actually. Gmail went all SSL a couple of years ago. I think it was pretty much around the Fire Sheep uh, time, and we might touch on that as well. Fire Sheep? Yeah, what's that? So there's a guy called uh, Eric Butler, and Eric created a, a plugin for Firefox called Fire Sheep. And the idea was that you go into an internet cafe somewhere, or you go into any cafe with free Wi-Fi or the airport or whatever, and you've got a whole bunch of people jumping on the free Wi-Fi there. You run this plugin and it shows you everyone around you that's logged into Facebook. You click on their name and you become them. Oh, now, <laughs> what a great guy. So that's, Thanks. Yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is equal parts cool and scary. And the reality of it is the way it worked was simply that Facebook was uh, persisting authenticated sessions using cookies. It would use an auth cookie, and, and this is the way we persist state in the, the stateless world that is HTTP. Nothing wrong with that per se, 
But because that cookie can be used to identify someone, it can also be used to impersonate someone. And if you can get your hands on that cookie, you can become them. And we have this in ASP.net. You'll see .ASPXAuth in there if you're using FormsAuth. Sure. So if you can grab that cookie, you can become there. Now, all FireSheep was doing was using the ability of a promiscuous network card or a network card that can go into monitor mode. And it basically means, look, I can see packets that may not necessarily be destined to me. And that's a, a factor of being on an unencrypted network. And it was saying, okay, well, these are all the packets I can see flying around with the authentication cookies. Yeah, which one do you want to grab? <laughs> I'll have that one. All right, so now I'm you. Now, he did that, uh, as, as I remember, not necessarily to try and hack people, but to raise the issue of the fact that we need broader SSL. And that was sort of around the right. time that face Facebook started going, okay, well, you know, maybe we've got to actually give an option to turn on SSL. And now, of course, they've gone... Uh, SSL everywhere anyway, whether you like it or not. And it was also around the time Gmail uh, was coming along and saying, okay, well, look, we've got to go SSL as well. And the, the relevance of Gmail in terms of is SSL slow is that when they did roll it out right across the board, they said it had an impact of something like 1% overhead on the CPU. It was like 1% or 2%. It was just, huh. you know, I mean, like you say, Richard, they're sitting back Smoking cigars and playing yeah. cards. I mean, right. <laughs> the CPUs are not doing much to keep SSL going. And so that just leaves the client. So, you know, what's, what's the overhead on the client? And look, let's face it, there's got to be some overhead. I mean, you're encrypting on one side and decrypting on the other side and adding additional bytes and communication. So there is an impact, but let's face it, it's, it's negligible. I mean, you just don't notice it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, so I, I mean, I just don't have a problem now with this. As soon as I need to authenticate someone in any way, the whole site should just be HTTPS all the time. Yeah, ex exactly. And and even the certificates, you know, you can get into a certificate for free now. You can go to Start SSL, walk through the process, get a free certificate, uh, whack it onto whatever web host you're using, and, and and you're up and running. I mean, that that is a that is a hard price to argue with. <laughs> Just use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have to give everyone the link to start SSL because that is pretty awesome. It's hard to argue with. Yeah. It's free. It, it it is. It's look, it's it's free. I wrote a blog post, I think, just last week about setting up a free start SSL certificate in Azure. With you know, you can do the whole thing in like fifteen minutes. It's just, it's simple and easy. And you know, I think probably the best advice I can give now is if you're starting up a new website that is going to require SSL, just make the whole thing SSL and be done with it because it's yep. a whole lot easier than if you come back later on and say, now I want SSL everywhere. And this is one of the things that Stack Overflow is struggling with a little bit because once you authenticate into Stack Overflow, your auth cookie is heading around in the clear. And, and they're aware of that. And what they're saying is, look, we want to roll over to SSL at some point, but we don't know the impact on things like search engine optimization. So what happens when the scheme of every URL changes? Is Google going to de-rank us or drop us down the search order somewhere? And that's not a problem you're going to have if you mm. go from the outset over SSL. Right. Because it's not like search engines won't go across your HTTPS. It's just that if you've now built up being really popular without HTTPS, switching may impact it. I well, you know, we don't know the answer to that. It's ironic, we? though, that Google is the one that has the problem with it when they're the ones that went all SSL. <laughs> right, AdSense doesn't work, and you know they may have a problem indexing when they're the one. You know, Gmail's all but, itself. Come on, guys, and, and lead the I way. I guess the thing is, you know, we don't know if there's going to be a problem with it. So for the guys at Stack Overflow, it's not that they're saying. And Nick Craver has a good blog post from I think about mid mid this year, mid 2013. Um, so they're not saying, look, there's going to be a drama. They're saying we don't know what's going to happen when suddenly someone requests one of our resources and we have to do an HTTP. 301 or 302 off to the same resource on another scheme. Yeah. So, hey, maybe it'll be great and Google will be smart enough to work out that it's just a slight change and it's really the same resource. But yeah. you can see how a website would be worried about possibly cannibalizing their SEO. Sure. Yeah. 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 All right. So, I mentioned cross-site scripting before uh, in our, um, when referring to transport layer protection. So, what about that? Is that still a problem? Because I remember that was a problem, though, I don't know, six or seven years ago. We sort of discovered that. Mm. Is that still an issue? Yeah. <laughs> so, sure uh, cross-site huh? scripting in the, and SQL injection, you know, are pretty much always the number one and number two risks that come up. And they're, they're just, 
that they're just so they're so easy to get right and they're so easy to get wrong. You know, and I, I think it's that sort of dichotomy that means that we still see so many sites where you will see a piece of data in the URL and it might be something like a script tag in the URL uh, and it just gets reflected onto the page. So, you know, you, you often see this in search features. So go to a website with a search and search for script alert one and, you know, get all the syntax right. And if you get an alert box, well, hey, there's your cross-site scripting risk. And what site is that? Uh, www.almostanything. <laughs> There's um, it, it happens in a whole lot of websites. So right. you know, and it's one of the one of the things I talk about in the course. A really easy remote way on a running website, your own running website, people, uh, to see if you have a cross-site scripting risk is to try uh, basically just plugging in an alert tag into a search box or into anywhere else that reflects user input. Now, of course, an alert tag isn't really going to do you any damage, but what if that script was actually accessing document.cookies? And right. what if it was taking document.cookies and it was actually passing that off to another resource? Yeah. You know, what could you do then? Well, you know, maybe you could get an auth cookie and you could impersonate someone. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So, and this gets back to our, I guess, our sort of theme here of we need to be doing this to our own site. Just trying each of these things and saying, you know, am, am I vulnerable? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, and, you know, I think for a lot of developers, it's kind of a fun process as well. It's, it's, it's licensed to break stuff. I mean, again, it's, it's your own <laughs> stuff, but there, there is a process that, uh, that you go through to learn and explore. And I, I think as, as people that generally like to be a little bit, um, creative, like to pull things apart and figure out how things work. And I, I think that that's, that's many of us as developers. It, it's actually quite a bit of fun too. So there's a protection header. There's something that we can put in our uh, script to help us with this. So for the cross-site scripting side of things, that there's two predominant defenses, and one of them uh, is a defense that we'd also apply against things like SQL injection, and that is to make sure that we validate any untrusted data against a whitelist of allowable values. So what I mean by untrusted data is anything that comes from an externality. So let's say uh, a request.form or request.cookies or request.query string. So anything that comes externally, and that would also include things like headers. So if you're accessing the user agent or you're accessing the language of the browser, they are being passed from an external source. Now, the point about whitelisting and validating those, those inputs is that you want to make sure they fit within an acceptable range. One of the attacks that we often see against things like, uh, say, SQL injection risk is you'll get an ID in a query string and someone will start to manipulate that ID and try and, you know, say, drop in a piece of cross-site scripting or drop in some, some SQL injection. Now, the idea of whitelisting is to say, well, when that ID comes in, it must always be a positive integer. If it's not a positive integer, then we're just going to, you know, handle it in some sort of graceful fashion. So white, whitelisting is one. And of course, you can apply whitelisting to things like, uh, you know, email addresses must comply to the email spec uh, with a regex or something like that. Now, the flip side is output encoding. So, okay, once I get that data, that untrusted data, and I do want to put it back on the screen, so, you know, you searched for whatever you entered, then you've got to make sure that it's encoded for the correct output context. Uh, so a really simple example of that is, uh, what if I receive an angle bracket in my search? If I put an angle bracket into the HTML source, then that is going to be parsed by the browser as an HTML tag. But if I output encode it, so I change it to an, an ampersand uh, LT semicolon, for example, for a less than angle bracket, then that will render to the screen. And that's your output encoding. And the thing to remember is that the way that you output encode into HTML is different to the way you output encode into, say, JavaScript. The escape sequences are different. So if right. you get those two things right, that's XSS predominantly knocked on the head. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just to, as a reminder, SQL injection is, you know, uh, taking whatever input that is and concatenating a query, a SQL query, like an insert or a select or whatever, just without any kind of, as you say, you know, uh, validation of that data, whatever it is, is they could close the query and start a new query. And that query could, you know, have all sorts of crazy, uh, crazy access to whatever. And do all sorts of nasty things. 
Yeah, exactly. And the the way SQL injection is often described is it's the ability to break out of the, the data context and enter the query context. So when you search for, you know, you might have a, um, say, SQL string that searches for a particular keyword and you're just concatenating the whole thing, you know, select star from products where name like, and then you just go plus and, and whack on the... Um, the search term. When that search term is able to maybe close off the data and then actually add another SQL statement to the end of it and change the execution on the server, that's when you have problems. And you know, like you say, Carl, one uh, mitigation there is to to do what we did with XSS just then, so whitelist the incoming data. And particularly for SQL injection, the other mitigation is to um, uh, parameterize it. So rather than build up inline SQL, actually pass it as a command parameter. Uh, so it's actually segmented, then it can't break out of that data context. Right. And I always think of XKCD's great comic on Little Bobby Tables. <laughs> I've right, got a gotta, T-shirt of that. <laughs> you got to tell us about that one. Oh, it's a, you know literally a comic of a of a mother on the phone with the school, and the school says, "Did you really name your child?" And it's a SQL injection string that says, "Drop students." <laughs> <laughs> And she says, yes, we call him Little Bobby Tables. That's funny. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a literally, you know, a, a joke about a SQL injection attack. It's That's hilarious. Funny. <laughs> First name, drop students. I love it. Uh, the, my favorite one I saw recently was somebody who replaced their dry, the, the license plate on their car with a SQL injection statement. Because they're, because they've now got these, uh, cameras out there parsing uh, license plates <laughs> and then running them against the database, right? That's great. So they actually, where the license plate was, now it actually has a SQL injection string in it. That's great. Except it doesn't work against humans when the cop pulls you over. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the shortfall. Yeah, I think you only want it when you're parking the car. All right, well, but SQL injection is not the be-all, end-all of anything, right? Yeah. I mean, do I need to become a script kitty here? Do I actually have to go off and get go to the script sites and hack my own site to try this all this stuff? Well, it would help. <laughs> and, you know, this is the thing. Like, a lot of the attacks that we have against websites are script kitties. They're, we've seen it through the likes of, of quote-unquote, hacktivists who I think in reality tend to be very opportunist. Um, and there's also a lot of tools out there that make it easy for them. So I have a video I did last year with my three-year-old using Havid to use SQL injection against a website. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, look that up. It's kind of funny. But uh, basically, <laughs> Havid, <laughs> a, a tool like Havid, all you do is you find a URL that has a pattern with something like ID equals. You copy that URL. You paste it into this nice graphical user interface in Havid, and you say Go. And, and that is it. And it goes away and it automates SQL injection and it says, here's the name of the database. Would you like to find all the tables? And you say, yes, please, give me all the tables. And it says, here's all the columns. And you say, okay, well, I would like these columns. Get me all the data. <laughs> it just comes back. It's 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 amazing. But I, I think to your point, Richard, yeah, I mean, learn how to use these things. I mean, it's not hard to learn how to use it. <laughs> but then learn how to defend against it because it's only when you get to exploit that and you see your data running on a live website, being pulled back by a tool that a three-year-old can use, that's yeah. when the penny drops. That nice little chill. That's it. I mean, and and that, you know what? We want you to get that before the attackers get that. Sure. Uh, have you used Beef, the browser exploitation framework project? <laughs> so I, I actually saw a, a question about that on Twitter just now. Yeah. Um, so it, look, things like beef and crime are attacks against the SSL protocols. They're attacks against a protocol that sort of fall outside the scope of, of what we can necessarily address as developers. And I, I think part of the issue here is we, we've got to decide what parts of security are within our control and what parts uh, then fall back to things like the protocol. So things like beef and crime, and for that matter, things like attacks against certificate authorities we're going to sort of work as developers with the assumption that these things are sound. And inevitably, things like actually managing SSL installations and managing infrastructure and managing protocols do sort of fall outside the development scope. Uh, unfortunately, the thing that we... Sure. Well, and I, and I want to be fair here. You know, if, if you're going to say that that SSL certificate authorities are not going to be exploited, which is has happened without a doubt... 
can't we also say the same thing about our ISPs then that we don't we shouldn't have to anticipate injection attacks from our ISPs? Yeah, I guess the problem is for something like and, and you know assuming we're talking about the example there with um, the the insufficient transport layer security and, and ISPs yeah. injecting things into there, that's just one point of the transport layer where the risk can happen. So when we're mitigating against that risk, yes, ISPs are one point where it can go wrong. Uh, by the same token, sitting in the coffee shop is another point where it can go yes. wrong. So that's something that we can be proactive about. There's not a whole lot we can do as developers against an attack against the certificate authority. Um, you know, we make the assumption that they're going to be sound. And as you say, they're not always sound. And in the case of something like DigiNota, when it goes really, really wrong, fortunately, um, things end up going very badly for them as well. And we won't see that happen again from DigiNota because they don't exist anymore. Yes. Well, and, and I think, yeah, that the we did a show on run as, which I'll provide a link to. Uh, I think it was with Barry Dorans, actually. Uh, where we spoke specifically about DigiNotar and just this whole situation of, yeah, here's here's a bunch of SSL certs that people paid for that are effectively no longer safe, and you have to switch them away. And, and they've actually been blacklisted by most browsers now, where if you actually go to a site that's using that, you're going to get that nasty SSL warning. Yeah, so they, they got revoked pretty quickly, that the certs that they issued. But, I mean, it's not just DigiNode. We've seen things, uh, similar attacks against Komodo, for example. Yeah. And I suspect we'll see other ones um, yet to happen. Uh, but, look, I mean, it's it's not a perfect mousetrap, but it's the best damn mousetrap we've got for the moment. Well, I'm, I'm also a big believer in the sort of the the um, mentality of the club, you know, the, the device for your car. The club doesn't make your car impossible to steal. It just makes it awkward enough that somebody who wants a car will take a different car. I'm, yeah, I'm exactly. okay just being secure enough that it's not an easy to exploit guy. Just as a deterrent. Yeah. And I always find it a little bit amusing. People sort of talk about security as though it's this absolute state, you know. So we want to be secure. Are we secure yet? Yes or no? Well, guys, it doesn't quite work that way. It's, it's about increasing the level, level of difficulty to exploit the system. So, you know, the club is one. The other might be, well, you know, I'm going to have whatever sort of um, immobilizer on the card. You know, you just keep raising that level of difficulty not to reach the absolute state of secure but to try and be just hard enough to breach such that it's not worth the while of the attackers anymore. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. You know what time it is. Oh, it must be that happy time again. It's time to sniff out all the promiscuous fire sheep and whack them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got a laugh out of Troy. That's great. Nice. Hey. No, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. To one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I do that, let me tell you that Kendo UI by Telerik is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. With server-side wrappers for ASP.NET MVC, you'll be able to produce awesome HTML5 apps powered by Kendo UI without being forced to write all that pesky JavaScript. Simply program on the server... And the Kendo UI wrappers will handle the HTML and JavaScript. Awesome. You'll have fun and your boss will be amazed. Visit the official website at kendoui.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T to find out more and download the free 30-day trial with full support. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. Yeah. Yeah. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Dale Barnard. Congratulations, Dale. Golf clap for you. Dale. And uh, he wins the DevCraft Complete Collection. It's everything Telerik does in one box. It's a $2,000 value. Nice. Yeah. And uh, we also give away a Carl Franklin Ben O'Wile CD. This is my solo album I've been working on for, oh, the last four years or so. If you like Steely Dan, The Eagles, Billy Joel, Classic Rock, and just good-timey kind of 70s-ish music, you'll like it. It's at carlfranklin.com. Today's winner, Rick Munzo. Right, congratulations, Rick. Rick. We want to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. Make some noise on the emails. So if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button. Ask, answer, answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every show we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection and a CD. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member, but you got to be a member to win. We'd like to ask our guests, Troy Hunt, if you had five grand to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? 
So many decisions. <laughs> uh, it, it, oh, so many options. Look, I'm, I'm a car guy. Um, so with five grand, I just got a Nissan GTR. So I would start working on the computer for that. And I would, I would definitely get a little bit more power out of that. And then I would get some really nice timing gear for the track, something that would give me some, some good sort of G forces and uh, GPS positioning. And I mean, there's five grand gone very, very quickly. Yeah. Which GTR do you have? The R35. Oh my the, goodness, uh, dude! Recent one. Yeah, that, yeah that's I, that's a beast of it. You already got 500 horsepower. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, but it's never enough. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a little bit more than 500 too. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> only only 500. Boys and their toys. There you go. But yeah, I, mean, I thought it already had a G meter in it as well. It does, but you know the thing about it is, as soon as there's anything interesting on the G meter, the last thing you want to be doing is look at the G meter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to be looking straight ahead, and you want to download that later on. And, and you know, you can't get that out of the system as it stands. You got to go and get some gear to pull it out. Oh, I see. Uh, but yeah, so some some good gear around that would be nice. Yeah, well, you got two lateral G's going on. You really should be looking out at the road. Yes, <laughs> that is always <laughs> wise. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, you you know, there's some serious toys in the car space. You can go as nuts as you want to go. All right, let's uh, dive back into this thing. So, we're still going through, I mean, what are the, the obviously, SQL injection, the SSL stuff. These are the obvious ones. Do you, is there, what's the tier past that? Well, you know, I, I think one of the ones that's quite interesting that a lot of people probably don't know about is clickjacking. And clickjacking is is kind of interesting because it's it's kind of a cross-site attack. Now, the, the way a clickjacking attack would work is let's say that you have a function on your website which you want authenticated users to use, mm-hmm. and that function might do something like uh, transfer money or confirm a process or something of some kind of value or significance that's available to an authenticated user. Now, what if a website could... And let's, let's say we now have an attacker website. So this attacker website puts in an iframe and what it does is it puts that iframe over its own content and it puts the target website into that iframe and then sets the transparency on it so it's not visible. But what it does is it sits over the top of this attacking website and this attacking website might have something like uh, click here and get your free iPad or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Now, when you click what you think looks like the free iPad, what you're actually doing is you're clicking that button on the target website. So that button that the authenticated user needs to click that performs some sort of action. So that is what we'd refer to as a clickjacking attack. And that's one that I often don't see any defenses against. How do you get clickjack in the first place? How does that code get inserted into your app? Well, the code's not inserted into your app. So really what's happening is you get, I mean, let's say you're on Facebook and there's a link to get free iPads. You go, yep, I'm going to go and get me a free iPad. You go off to a website that is the attacker's website. Right. The attacker's website is the one that has the iframe that loads your website into it. So your website doesn't have any code injected into it. In fact, your website, as far as it's concerned, it's just loading normally. Yeah. But it's loading into the attacker's website into that iframe with the transparency down to nothing. So it right. still works. It's still loaded into the DOM. All the buttons and things like that on the website are still active, but it doesn't know that it's loaded into that iframe. How do I defend against that? Well, it turns out it's very easy. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so there is. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's easy when you have the answers. <laughs> there is a header called uh, X-Frame Options or XFO. And if you set this XFO header, you can start to define policies about the way your website is allowed to be framed. So, for example, you can say, look, I want to deny any framing. So whenever any resource is requested by the browser, if it comes back with that deny header on XFO, it won't allow that page to be framed. So the browser won't allow it's it, it is really a browser control so obviously you need the browser to implement it which all the modern ones do right and that would stop it from being framed so yeah as long as you set your x frame option requirements for your browser this is just one of those this should be in a header of every one of your pages right 
Yeah, exactly. And that makes it very simple. I mean, it's, it's not perfect as well, because you may have cases where, look, I've got one or two pages, which I want to be framed, but then uh, the rest of it, I don't want to be framed. So you could always then go through to those couple of pages and say, okay, well, look, I'm going to turn a different sort of response header for these guys than what I are for the rest of the site. Where it gets a little bit trickier is that you can also do things like say, uh, there is a trusted URI which can frame this page, right? but the spec only allows you to have one of them. So if you say, look, I want this page to be framed, but I only want it to be framed by this other site, that's right. fine. If I want it to be framed by these two other sites, then you've got a problem. Unless you start getting much trickier and looking at where the request has come from and then customizing the header based on that. And it's, you know, it gets a little bit messy, but uh, certainly for the kind of default position of you probably shouldn't allow your stuff to be framed by external sites, XFO does the job. Yep. That seems like just a checklist item. It's arguably easier to set that just to recognize if this site doesn't isn't going to use framing for anything than just set X frame options. And yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. To, it's not a hard deny. one. And it, and this is the thing. It's, it's kind of the, the the point of of hacking yourself. It's so easy to discover these things. I mean, you go into any browser, open up the dev tools, uh, look at the request, and look at the response headers that come back. Does it has, have an XFO header? Yes or no? Right. Yeah, and it, I mean, it sort of gets back to this attitude of just, here's how I expect my site to run. These are the things that this app works this way. Deny everything else. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's very much the whitelist approach too, isn't it? This is what we know to be good. If it is right. not something good, then don't allow it to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's a funny one. Uh, arguably, yeah, it seems like that would be tougher to test than it would be to protect against. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, again, once you know what you're looking for, it, it's not a hard thing. And uh, I think this, again, comes back to the point where a lot of this is, is pretty simple stuff. you just got to learn the patterns. And you can learn these patterns against live running websites. I mean, something like looking at response headers. I mean, yeah, you can look at the response headers of any request you make. It's, it's not about hacking. It's just about identifying that there's a pattern here that might be at risk. Right. Yeah, just know and know what it is. Yeah, click jacking. That's a good one. And, and I've heard of it, but yeah, just looking at that approach, it's just not that hard to protect yourself from it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Are there others like that? Yeah, there's lots of little things. I mean, a, a, another good one is when we talk about cookies. And one of the things that people often miss in cookies is the HTTP only attribute. Now, what that does is you got to remember with cookies, we can set and read them from both the client and the server. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's good. And in some ways, that's bad. So it's good because it gives us a lot of flexibility. We can write JavaScript to access the same sort of persisted resources, what we can with, say, our C Sharp on the server side. The bad thing is, is that it also works like that <laughs> in the attacker's favor. So, you know, let's talk about something like the auth cookie. So we touched on that earlier with Firesheet. That auth cookie is what keeps you authenticated. Now, it's only the server that needs to access that because it's the server that's going to then make a, make assertions about who you are and go, you know, give you access to resources, et cetera. You don't want client script accessing your auth cookie. Now, what the HTTP only flag does is it says client script cannot access this cookie. So you'll still see it in your browser. Your browser still passes it backwards and forwards, but your browser has the control that says if this cookie is flagged as HTTP only and someone tries to access, say, document.cookies on the client side, this does not exist. And that's a really, really simple thing. Right. Yeah, simple trap to, to deal with, and then, you, then you're fine. Yeah, exactly. And and what often happens is when people don't do that, we see it combined with other vulnerabilities in order to actually create an exploit. So let's say you have no HTTP only on your auth cookie. Right. That alone is not a problem. Now combine that with a cross-site scripting risk. So now what if we have a situation where an attacker can get arbitrary script to run in the browser and mm -hmm. they can either use reflected XSS like we talked about earlier, so someone sort of passes it through in the request, or they might use persistent XSS, so they might actually put it into your database. So they they register on a forum, and in their signature, they have some uh, a piece of script that accesses document.cookies. So that would then be persisted, so that yep. other people would see that. So now the attacker has got script running in your site, and because your cookies aren't flagged as HTTP only, that script can grab them and send them off. Now, if either of those vulnerabilities didn't exist, then we wouldn't have an exploit. But it's when you combine them together that the risk manifests itself. Right. 
Yeah, no, we're sort of past this one simple exploit and the, and the keys to the kingdom are there. It's the combination of exploits that create problems. It often is. It often is. Yeah. So do you actually do this? Go off and grab this, the scripts from the, from the hack sites and actually try them against your, your, your website? Yeah, well, you know, inevitably there's a lot of pre-existing patterns out there and, and yep. certainly I would go and give those a run against my website. I, I sort of understand it from the other side as well insofar as what's required on the internals of the website to protect against this. So, so hopefully my websites <laughs> generally don't have those problems. Um, but I think going out and finding pre-existing patterns and attacks and then testing them against your websites is always a good thing. And again, particularly when there's tools like Havage in order to test SQL injection, that makes things really, really easy when you want to have a go at your own stuff. Sure. And, and where do you get these things from? Yeah, look, a combination of places. Um, something like Havage is, I forget the name of the website, if you just search for H-A-V-I-J, and we can probably put that in the notes there somewhere that is available from a from a security uh, firm who, who make a, f a free version of that available and then a right. paid version to do some trickier things uh, other patterns so there's a very good resource uh, called the XSS cheat sheet which has got lots of examples of how to use uh, cross-site scripting attacks against different output um, locations so for example what if I want to run a cross-site scripting attack against a piece of output that is in an HTML attribute, there's going to be different patterns for that than if it was outputting in the middle of a tag. Uh, so some really good patterns there on the cross-site scripting cheat sheet. There are obviously lots of underground forums to be approached with caution <laughs> because you just never quite know what you're yeah. going to get from that. Probably, sure. probably don't download anything from there, guys. Um, copying and pasting some some JavaScript, maybe not such a problem. But there are, you know, there's there's sort of this underground world of the the black hats and the grey hats with uh, lots of nasty things, and there is the the nicer guys who then provide some tools for free as well. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people just come up to me and say, "Man, I got this message on my computer that says your your PC has been infected. Click here to clean it, and then it got worse." You know, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> it's just they prey on the stupidity of people. You know. I know a guy who got a phone call. He got a phone call saying, you know, your, your, uh, Wi-Fi has been compromised and gave him a whole bunch of stuff that he found on the guy's computer and then walked him for an hour through a conversation. And at the end of an hour said, well, we, we can fix it from here, but it's going to cost, you know, 700 bucks or something like that. Can you believe <laughs> that? You know, I can believe that, but only because I've had so many calls like that. And what I do is I've actually got virtual machines that I keep just waiting for these guys because I seem to keep getting the calls. <laughs> so I wait till they call up. I've got Camtasia running and we go through the process. I've got a video up there that's that's about an hour and a half of someone taking me through this process in a virtual machine. Oh, that's great. Um, and it's, it's up on YouTube and it seems to be, be quite popular. But oh, it's, it's, awesome. you know, it's nasty. And they call up and say, hey, we're Microsoft and your computer right. is sending errors. Um, please do this. And they do things like, please open the event viewer right. and do you see any errors in there? Yes. Okay. You've got viruses. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scripts. Yeah. Uh, That's terrible. It's nasty. Yeah. yeah. Just taking advantage of them. Yeah. The scamming the scammers video. That's the one. That's oh. the yeah. one. I'll, I'll include that link because that's hilarious. I've watched that before. It is funny. I got to see that. I got to <laughs> see it. I, I, look, love I, stuff I don't know like how that. people have the patience to watch the video. <laughs> it's long. Yeah. Like an hour and 20 minutes. That's the know, main con. The most popular comment is you're the most patient man I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. That is funny. That is great. So I, I have a random question for you. What's fuzz testing? <laughs> so fuzz testing, it, it's it's a little bit of a, a way of kind of automating various or sort of sending various parameters to a web application. Oh, so, phew, I thought it had to do with promiscuous fire sheep. <laughs> it's all downhill from here. <laughs> so, no, no, uh, the idea of fuzz testing is, look, when you go and test for risks in your websites, uh, one of the things that you commonly do is try and bombard input uh, with various types of data. So, for example, when we want to test for cross-site scripting, one of the things we want to do is, is let's imagine the search feature again. We want to test all sorts of different possible attack vectors in there. So we want to try 
plugging in angle brackets we want to try, uh, putting in some script, we want to try various types of characters and seeing how the website responds. Now you can sit down there and do that one by one by one or you can use a fuzz tester which will say, look here is a whole bunch of different possible payloads and we're just going to go and hit your website with them automatically and then give you a report of how it responds to each one. So okay. one of the things I do in the course is say, look, what you can do, and there's lots of different fuzz testing tools out there, um, but throughout the course I use Fiddler a lot, and there's a plugin uh, to Fiddler which can automate that. So you just go and you use Fiddler to, to capture a request, say a request to the search page, and then you click on the request and go, okay, well now I'd like to fuzz test this. And it just bombards it with data and says, well, look, this particular request resulted in a, in a five, uh, 500 error. Uh, therefore, there's some sort of internal exception. You probably want to go and look at why that happens. Right. So it basically just makes up stuff and goes and uh, manipulates your website with it. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's preloaded with a whole bunch of different attack vectors. So it's not just necessarily yeah. cross-site scripting, but you'll find things like SQL injection attack vectors in there as well. And it's the, the thing is, it's a little bit indiscriminate. It's, it's a whole bunch of different things that are probably not going to work 90% of the time. But when it does find that hit, it, it does actually get a success where the website doesn't respond in the way you would like it to, then that's just made your job a whole lot easier because it's come back to you automatically. Right. Absolutely. Are there any particular concerns about mobile security that um, that uh, ASP.NET developers have to worry about on these devices versus PCs? Yeah, look, I think mobile security is, is getting really interesting. I, I just did a talk on this in TechEd in Australia a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I think a lot of people there were surprised at just how bad our mobile security is in terms of the way our mobile devices are actually talking to, to web services. Um, and I, I think what's really interesting here is when you go to a website and, and say you go to log in, you know, you look for a padlock in the address bar and you look for HTTPS, you have a good idea of the security profile of that website. When you download a mobile app, you have absolutely no idea what sort of security is in place between that mobile app and the website. So you're effectively implicitly trusting that app to do the right thing. Now, what's interesting is when you grab a mobile device and you proxy that traffic through something like Fiddler and you look at the requests that are being made, I would say probably about half the apps that I look at that are talking to a web backend are doing something terrible security-wise. So they're either not using HTTPS at all for uh, requests with things like credentials well, the other thing that I often see happening is they're using HTTPS, but they're not validating the certificate. And I even found this with a local bank recently, which had been okay, but for some reason the developers decided, look, it's actually getting in my way, validating a certificate. So, so maybe they're working in their, their local uh, dev environment and they had a self-signed cert. Yeah, I would just turn off certificate validation to try and make things easy. And then suddenly your entire transport layer security has gone out the window and you as a user have no idea because the app is sort of gobbling up those exceptions that would otherwise come to you in a web browser. Well, I've run into this on WinPhone 8 at least, where WinPhone 8 does have some certificate requirements in place, and but it fails so badly. The way the error message it gives, just you have no clue what the problem is. It is very hard when if the phone actually asserts any requirements for security at all, you just get a baffling message. And good luck. Yeah, yeah. And look, that's it. It, it is always going to be this issue of okay, you, you're possibly going to get some nasty uh, errors that are going to be raised by whatever is is checking the certificate chains and making sure things are valid. You know, it's then up to you as the developer to say, okay, well, how am I going to handle that? And I guess the really important message there is that you've got to have some sort of process to validate certificates and hide all that nastiness away from the users. Yeah. But if that certificate is not valid, so if there is a man in the middle serving up their own certificate, you've got to throw some sort of exception. You can't let people pass their credentials or their banking data over that connection. Yeah. I think you get back to that same old thing of your app should know what context it's expected to run in. And if it's not running in that, complain and stop. 
Yeah, absolutely. And certificate validation is is sort of the that that's the entry point. We then move on to things like certificate pinning, where apps sort of say, okay, well, look, this is the exact certificate signature that I expect to see. And unless I get that exactly, everything's game over. You know, we're just going to stop. Yeah. And, and, and give good instructions. Like, look, this looks very insecure. I do not want your information to be exploited. You need to go get some help. Yeah, precisely. Look, a lot of apps do that. I mean, there's, there's normally very intuitive messages to the user. So I'm, I'm an iPhone user and I know that many of my apps, if I go to a website where I'm proxying traffic through Fiddler and it's sending its own self-signed cert, it gets a pretty good connection, uh, a pretty good response rather to the user. And it will say something like, this uh, website has responded in an insecure fashion. Uh, we weren't able to continue with the request or, or something that kind of makes sense to the user. And then if they're out on a public Wi-Fi or something like that, that's probably a good point to say, yeah, that's, you know, maybe we should disconnect from this. <laughs> well, how do you feel about VPNs in mobile? Look, oh, I, I think there are, yeah, <laughs> well, it cer certainly solves many of the problems that we have around using public Wi-Fi, which I guess is sort of the low-hanging fruit for uh, monitoring uh, the, the, the transport layer. So, you know, it's... It, I just it's think Wi-Fi needs to get much smarter on these devices, like geolocated Wi-Fi, for example, should just be the default when I, I should just pick w when Wi-Fi is on and when it's not, because when it's on, I'm mm. sending out all sorts of broadcast messages that can be exploited. And when it, that's great when I'm at the office or the house, but otherwise I don't want it on unless I say. We, I think you're onto something there, Carl. That's such a great idea. Like the big problem here, and we did a run as on this as well. You can tell where I get my security exercise was about how, the way Wi-Fi works, especially on phones, it's literally broadcasting which SSIDs it's looking for. But if you were geofencing those SSIDs, then you wouldn't be broadcasting so many anyway. If I know where I am when I when you first attach me to this SSID, so I'll give it a certain range, and outside of that range, I'm not going to broadcast it. Right. So when you're at home, it only looks for your home network. Right. Yeah, that's a great idea. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, that your phones and your mobile devices, anything with a Wi-Fi card is actually broadcasting that. And there's a really, really good test for this. And there's a, a few pieces I've written up on this little device called a Wi-Fi pineapple. Mm -hmm. And what this little Wi-Fi pineapple does is it's about the size of a cigarette packet and it's got an aerial with obviously a Wi-Fi adapter in it. But it looks for those requests that you were just talking about. So, you know, as you're wandering around far from home and you're mobile is saying, hey, you know, where's, you know, Troy's home network. The Wi-Fi pineapple looks for that request. It's called a probe request. It gets it and it says, well, you know what? I'm going to set my SSID to Troy's home network. And your phone then goes, hey, there's Troy's home network. And if you didn't have any sort of encryption on that network, even WEP, let alone WPA or something, then a connection is automatically made because it's not expecting to do any sort of authentication handshake. Now, we probably get our home networks pretty secure, but you go down to the cafe and the cafe has got free Wi-Fi with no password, you can be somewhere else on the other side of the world and your phone is just broadcasting this SSID. Someone turns up with a pineapple and suddenly you're on their network, haven't even taken it out of your pocket. Crazy. Well, and yeah, we, when we talked about this on Run As, the guy had gone a couple of steps further. He had actually pre-computed the top million passwords with all the default SSIDs in a rainbow table. So even if you had WEP turned on, if you had the default SSID and a common password, it's still authenticate. And then <laughs> the first thing it does is it sends out, you know, oh, let's connect to Facebook. Here's my password. Oh, let's connect to Gmail. Here's my password. And so you're, you're <laughs> sucking all those things down. Who does that, really? <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> it's, it's, um, well, it's, good, it's what the phone... The thing that was awesome was, this is what your phone does automatically. You haven't even taken it out of your pocket. Right. But yeah, because you've yeah. set it up like this, a guy walks into a Starbucks and literally pumps all the phones for all of their information in a matter of minutes. Crazy, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's so it. we, need it, our, we want scary. our geolocated Wi-Fi. Guys, get on the bandwagon here. 
good things will happen. Good things, we hope. And, but the, and again, this is outside the context of what a developer necessarily needs to do. Although, yeah, developers should definitely work on the geolocated Wi-Fi side. Like, I'm doing some shows on run ads around IPv6 and stuff. We're talking about how much intrinsic security just comes when you get off that, when you get over to IPv6. Yeah. Well, you know, this is this is the sort of thing that's good to understand as a developer because a lot of people think that risks such as man-in-the-middle attacks are very hypothetical. And right. it's only when you see how easy it is for something like a pineapple that you realize why that HTTPS is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nothing like a demo just to scare some people. <laughs> that it, and it walks us right back to your original principle, Troy. Hack your own site. Scare yourself. Right. <laughs> that's it. Pineapple, I love it. Troy, thank you so much. It's uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much, guys. It's always fun. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band.